welcome to the Riot Woman podcast, which features creative conversations with artists, academics, and activists who identified with or were influenced by the punk and Riot Girl subcultures. I'm your host, Eleanor Callett-Whitney, a feminist, writer, and marketer based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of the forthcoming book, Riot Woman, a collection of memoir-infused essays about how Riot Girl has shaped my life. On this show, I'll be talking with a diverse range of guests and invite them to reflect on how punk, feminism, and the do-it-yourself spirit has impacted their adult lives and the work they make. On this episode, my guest is cosmic femme punk visionary Talene Kelly. Talene is a musician, writer, publisher of the independent magazine Dum Dum Zine, and a sound healer based in Los Angeles. She's also the composer of the show's theme music. We talk about discovering punk through downloading songs from Napster, transitioning to playing punk as a classically trained musician, the immediate accessible power of the Riot Girl Manifesto and its lasting impact on our lives, the cognitive dissonance of living in an NYC punk loft venue while working for a luxury magazine, the visceral feeling of building creative community in L.A., the importance of print in an internet-fueled culture, and healing, DIY, and the power of sound. She's also joined by her adorable pup, Lilu Kali, so you might hear her tags jingle a bit in the background. This is an episode you don't want to miss, friends. How I like to start it is just to invite you to tell me about how you first discovered punk or riot girl and why it appealed to you. It's interesting because I discovered them at very different times in my life. I think I was 14 or 15 when I started downloading punk covers. Uh, they took 45 minutes to download each song. Took were 45 using, minutes like, to download. <laughs> were you using like LimeWire or something? Yeah. Yeah, or like Napster, <laughs> Napster. or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like I didn't have a record player. I had a lot of tapes. Um, uh-huh. I didn't have any punk tapes. But for some reason, for one reason or another, I got really into downloading punk covers. <laughs> Wait, when you say punk covers, do you mean like – covers of punk songs or like album covers or like what were, specifically were you downloading? <laughs> I, I don't even remember. I just had, I, I think they were just like cover songs, cover songs by punk bands or, you know, like I, uh -huh. I, let's be honest here. A lot of it was ska. Okay. That's, like that's fine. <laughs> you're not going to be the count? only one on this podcast who has, talked about ska so like don't this is a call, safe don't. space <laughs> this is a safe space this no is ska, ska please safe space. <laughs> this is a ska safe space okay just don't call the ska police i'm not <laughs> that not sounds like a joke it. like what do you call the ska police and the punchline's like pick it up pick it up pick it up i'm sorry <laughs> this is already off to a great start <laughs> Well, I just think that, you know, I, I I think I was just the first one was probably like no doubts, oi to the world. Mm -hmm. Um and just along along that vein of stuff and I would just get so bored while I was downloading these songs and I would just do like macrame 
on the floor of my friend's house and like, you know, make picture frames with macrame. And so that was, that was one vibe of, of finding punk music and getting like interested in, you know, music that wasn't like at Tower or, or Borders or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And then and later... And sorry, you were living in LA at this time. You're from LA originally. So where in LA was this? This was in the the San Fernando Valley. Amazing. It was like Deep Valley. Deep Valley. So you had like access to like mall culture kind of. Oh yeah. I was the nerd who would study at the mall. That's who I was. Amazing. Yeah. So, So you're lying on the floor, San Fernando Valley, macrame while you download. And then the other vein that you were just, starting to talk about oh yeah you know it's so funny how this shit works because I was like I I found the riot girl manifesto on tumblr in my 20s like I didn't have access to zines I didn't know where to find these I didn't really know much about them um as being a kid who grew up in the valley uh, for one reason or another I'd never heard of riot girl even though it was on MTV, I don't know. I somehow missed the boat. And, um, you know, I found the Riot Girl Manifesto on fucking Tumblr while I was in art school. And it it changed my life. It changed my goddamn life. It was incredible. So you were in your 20s. Was this when you were an undergraduate in you, art school? I was in Chicago. We were just talking about Chicago. Okay, so yeah. Before. So you were, in, yeah. you were in grad school doing, like journalism and um art and things like that and that's when you came across riot girl manifesto and what about it changed your life like what did it add to your life that you had been looking for that maybe you didn't know until that point it was so accessible and it was empowering and it was inclusive I felt like I could see myself making shit on a whole new like raw level that I I wasn't able to before because I I had um, there was so much formalism in the education that I had access to, um, but there wasn't this kind of raw nerve that I had always felt but didn't know how to access, and it helped me access a part of myself, this like raw creative nerve um, for the first time. I would say, um, yeah, I felt like it. I felt like they were speaking to me. You know, I felt like I was already a part of it. Somehow, possibly, like, something in my cultural memory, you know, yeah. like, got awakened. <laughs> That's amazing. And I've, you know, I've discovered Riot Girl probably about 10 or so years before you, maybe a little less, but I was a teenager and it was the late 90s. And so it had already sort of passed and I already felt like I was late and had missed the boat, but it still really struck me and did feel immediate and accessible and like I was part of it, which is really powerful. I wow. Think. Wow. Yeah. So what did that motivate you to do or how did that like change your practice as an artist at that time or did it? <laughs> oh, it did. Oh, it to- girl, it completely did. I felt like I had freedom to say or do a lot of things that I hadn't 
given myself permission for or that I hadn't received permission for from whatever entity, you know, I immediately Mm -hmm. felt like I was part of this, this, you know, even though it was in the past, it felt very much present to me. It felt really nonlinear in this fucking amazing way. Um, I was, I felt like I was part of something and I felt like I could do and say things that I wasn't able to do before. And, you know, I had written songs when I was, when I was a kid, um, on and off for years, but it really galvanized me to write, to write for real. You know what I mean? For lack of better words. I was like, Hey, like, Hey, I'm writing this song right now and it's going to be a song and then I'm going to write the next one and then I'm going to show my friends and then, you know, and then I'm going to like, um, send someone a mixtape and then, you know, it just started, it just galvanized this communal feeling of art and, um, empowered me to make my own art and uh pretty much immediately I started doing weird spoken word shit with like loop pedals in the background (laughs) um and uh, and then soon after that I moved back to LA and started my first band so had you been playing guitar before this or did that also inspire you to start playing guitar as well yeah I've been playing yeah I've been playing like piano since I was six and like when I was 16, I was like, I was still playing piano, but um, I picked up the guitar. And so I had been playing for a while, um, but I had mostly just been playing around, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I never thought I could be in a band or start a band or write my own songs. Like that didn't, like I would always like wish for that someday manifest, but I had no idea how or like I didn't. I didn't have the access to how, and it was really just reading the manifesto for the first time that set that off. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And had you been in like marching band or school band as a kid, you mentioned you're a nerd that did your homework at the mall. Were you also a band nerd? Yeah. You know, I was a theory nerd. I used to perform and take all these like theory tests and like composition tests. My parents wanted me to be like a good Armenian girl who could play like piano at at parties. (laughs) So, so they, you know, I had a piano teacher growing up and she, she had me study all of this theory and songwriting and and composition. Um, And I take all these tests and, you know, whatever it wasn't, it was such an isolating experience. Like it was creative and very like highly, highly formal, but I would never really like have people to jam with. Like there wasn't like a music school I went to. We didn't really have a music program at the, at the Armenian school I went to. There were like only three kids who like kind of liked bands and um, would like paint like band names with white out on our backpacks, like in my whole, in my whole grade. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because I also studied piano and clarinet and I took a lot of music lessons as a kid but you're very right that it was so isolating and I didn't know how to play with other people. I did play in jazz band yeah. and before <laughs> I became a punk, I was a jazz kid and I don't know what's more obnoxious. <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I love it. No, I love that. I love that. That's so cool. A jazz kid. <laughs> oh God. It, I mean, it was so, and it was so male dominated. And I just remember, and I played the clarinet, which is just like, really embarrassing but 
Why? These kids, these these jazz kids would like make fun of me because it was like, oh, who's ever been a good jazz clarinetist? And, you know, they would play these games on the bus, like going to jazz band performances where you would name a musician and then you would have to name a group that he played in or like a musician he'd played with in some group and then a, another musician that musician had played with because a lot of these musicians you know played in many different combinations over the years and it was so deep nerd which in a way I appreciated but it was so isolating and I just remember discovering punk and playing guitar and I've still never taken a guitar lesson which probably makes me pretty limited in guitar but it felt so freeing and I was finally like oh I can just like leave all that theory behind though it does help me write songs and understand what to play and why something might sound like it does and just like play and express myself so yeah it's a big shift when you've been so formally trained for so long yeah you almost have to untrain yourself somehow yeah I'm still working on that (laughs) right right yeah um (laughs) Sometimes so, I'll like, sometimes we'll be at band practice and I'll just like spout like Latin terms and my fucking bandmates will look at me like, you know, with respect because they're, you know, they're great dudes, but like, like what you doing girl? <laughs> like, <laughs> why? Totally. Why we got to do this? <laughs> why do we, yeah. Yeah. Can't we just play some Zeppelin who's, which is actually highly technical. No, I've just. Totally. They're so there. You could, you could not have a more technical rock band like without going like to the other side of of the the prog like mountain you know exactly (laughs) so you came back from Chicago to LA and not to like put too many things into this conversation but I was just listening to your dum-dum zine podcast and you were talking about the origins of dum-dum zine so you had like also started uh, Dum Dum Zine at this time, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. So it's so interesting because the zine and the band happen at the same time. You know how like nothing happens, and nothing happens, and it's like super quiet, and you have no ideas, or you're just like, oh my god, I want to do something different, and I want to express it, and then and then it all just kind of happens at once. Like it was just this like creative zeitgeist that happened all at once, where I created the zine and then the band and. And so that was happening, like, that was happening concurrently when I moved back to L.A. That's amazing. And did your kind of discovery of Riot Girl and that motivation you felt play into that? I mean, it's okay if it didn't. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, because these girls, they were, like, making their own media and creating their own media, and that was such a huge like beautiful thing to see you know they say the most creative thing or the most important thing that you can do creatively is inspire other people to make more stuff and I feel like Riot Girl does that you know yeah continuously and there's some very right on critiques of it which I myself have made and seen about in some ways despite its inclusive aims it wasn't as inclusive as it maybe wanted to be especially around like race and class yes but yes you know it is important to say that there is that motivation and inspiration that keeps going and I think which is why I wanted to have these conversations and and sort of dig into that as well and also just what keeps us going as artists and I think for me it really is thinking about the people that inspired me and also creating with the hope of 
inspiring someone else. So what happened when you came back to LA with all this energy and these projects and you had your zine and you were starting your band? You were really like digging into this DIY lifestyle, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, I was really lucky because, you know, I read the manifesto and I was making all this stuff when I was in Chicago and I got to... I was having all these feelings and making all these things. Like I was making little perzines before, before Dum Dum Zine. And it, it was like the first year of Chicago Zine Fest when I was there. So my last year in Chicago was the first year of Chicago Zine Fest. And that was my first experience being part of this larger zine community. And while I was at Ch- Chicago Zine Fest, I met Erica sender who who's from LA who was going to school in Chicago and she told me she's moving back home to LA where they're going to have the first LA zine fest ever and so I was like well I'm moving back home to LA and I gotta meet these I gotta meet these people so I moved back home started Dum Dum Zine started my first band and there we were 2012 year one of LA zine fest at the last bookstore and there it was like there she was like that creative community um and it was happening for the first year you know since the 90s or whatever back in LA it was coming back because of because of LA Zine Fest and so I was in this unique position of being able to join this creative community by virtue of you know being in like being inspired finding my my dharma my inspiration and and then being able to share it in this community which kind of brought it like it it was a very visceral feeling you know yeah because it sounds like before even though you'd been in school and i know you lived in a punk house in new york before that but <laughs> oh, it sounds God, like it yeah. Just digging up your past here. Oh my god, I my love research. my punk house. <laughs> oh my god, we could talk about that too. I love, I love my punk house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about it. Like, so, so we're gonna put a pin that LA Zine Fest started 2012. <laughs> it was this really visceral moment. But like, let's rewind a little. So you lived in New York, um, mid 2000s, and talk to me about this this punk house I'm assuming like many punk houses you had shows and did various things how did that come together and how did you decide that's how you wanted to experience New York (laughs) dude dude I worked for a luxury magazine in the daytime and lived in a punk house at night like it was just so funny and interesting so I literally like graduated from from undergrad and then five minutes later moved to New York and you know just through music friends I you know wanted the quickest place and the cheapest place and uh, in an artistic community because Gawker RIP kept talking about Bushwick as this this like mecca for uh, like a creative community in New York. And I was like, okay, cool. I want to live there. And, you know, just got introduced through musician friends. Uh, and we, we moved into this house all together, just a group of like the four of us and like built drywall and created a, a loft venue basically. And so we would have shows at night. We would like support touring bands coming through and we all had day jobs 
in the daytime and I loved magazines and I loved writing about bands. So I took the first magazine job I got, which was working as a receptionist for a luxury, a luxury mag, which was like, oh my God, like what a mess. (laughs) So you were working as a receptionist for this luxury mag. You were living in a punk house hosting touring bands. I imagine you were coming in late, maybe unshowered, not very slept. So this is an odd juxtaposition. Um, How did you justify (laughs) these two kinds of parts of your life? It was so interesting because, oh my gosh, it was so interesting because I was like, I was moonlighting also, you know, when we, when we didn't have these punk shows, I was moonlighting for Spin and Yahoo Music and uh, the Onion AV Club. And I was like staying out really late covering bands and had these like insane deadlines and then would have to get up and go to my, my like luxury office job where I was a receptionist. And I, I remember I'd like play like Depeche Mode or like you know, like New York, like punk, punk bands, like on the receptionist computer. And like one day the editor in chief came up to me and was like, dude, like, dude, (laughs) he was like, these are great tunes, but do you realize like where you work? And I was like, I know, I know exactly what I'm doing, fam. (laughs) You know, I really think a lot about this this artist collective slash dance night that my friends put on around this time in the mid two thousands called Cheryl. And they still do it occasionally, but it was like costumes and there was a craft table and, you know, fun DJs, but they would always make these super arty videos before the dance night to tell you kind of what the theme was about. And there was one called, Great Recession, oh no, no, Great Depression Take Two Electric Boogaloo. And (laughs) it opens in them like working in, you know, some supposedly like Lux office and like drinking martinis. And then it's like, you're laid off. And I, this is just the image I have in my head. And then they like go to Coney Island and dance around in trash bags. So (laughs) I will put this video in the show notes because it's too good. So this is what I imagine your life like kind of oh my goodness I feel so seen right now <laughs> oh my goodness you know what the other video that I think about too is oh my god we gotta like watch them together is there's like a fabulous stains uh scene where it's like all about oh god I don't remember what the name is but it's like the fabulous stains go to work or something or like wow or like day job or something like that and it's just like all them it's like taking up all these like uh archetypes of like the working woman but they're total punks so oh oh my goodness yeah I've seen that okay we'll definitely have to dig that one up as well so good so good it's interesting that you were really immersed in this punk scene but you hadn't quite discovered like riot girl and feminist punk. Would you have considered yourself a feminist at this time? Dude, I don't know if I knew what that was. Like apart from like on a scholarly level, because I was such a reader, I would like read a lot about this stuff, but, and I definitely like felt it. Like I felt that I, I wanted to do all of these things that dudes would do, you know, is like picking, you know, like, quote, unquote, masculine 
things to have a vested interest in, you know, photography, like music, you know, like very, very male dominated things. And I think that I, I didn't know how to embody these things and I didn't know how to embody feminism, but I had a lot of anger. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's how it would manifest like anger. Like I was an yeah. angsty, angsty punk, like an angsty lux punk. Like, I definitely see the overlap in to goth right now. It's very oh, clear. Oh goodness! I wish we knew each we'd known each other when we were teens. We would take over the mall. Yeah, it's a hot topic. Better watch out. Totally. I was also very angsty as well. How do you think, like, being involved in? these different scenes you've been involved in in your life and also these different cities like Chicago, New York, LA, they're all very different, but they're all very vibrant centers of making art and culture. How do you think that's influenced you now? How hasn't it influenced me? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I think, gosh, I don't even know how my parents let me go to New York. Oh my goodness. Like, I think it was just amazing to be able to take a stand and say, no, I'm going, like, I'm going, I'm going because I wanted to, because I grew up in a very sheltered Armenian community, like an Armenian immigrant community in the fucking valley. Like you don't get more sheltered than that, you know? And I think that being able to take a stand and leave and, uh, and explore, these different ways of relating with people in a way that LA doesn't have arguably still, you know, LA does get it, but it's in pockets and it's very rare to get this kind of communal feeling of making art. And I think being able to leave and be in a city, be in cities that are quite colder where you, where you need each other more, (laughs) where you (laughs) have more watering holes and you know, you quite literally need to, you know, get together and congregate. uh, So you don't isolate yourself. I think it taught me how to be an artist within a community. Uh, and then I was able to move home and, and find that here through, through finding, you know, what I, what I loved and, and what I wanted to relate to and the incredible, beautiful people that I'm still, I'm still friends with in these creative communities. I'm just so lucky that I got to meet, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, I never thought about the weather and the coldness as a factor of community building. But I think it's really true also because people aren't in New York and Chicago, maybe to a lesser extent, aren't as isolated in their cars. They live in apartments generally. So, you know, you don't have like a house with a garden or things that are a little more common in LA, even with apartments, uh, you don't spend time in a car. So you're like in the world, but it can be really, really isolating. And I think winters are long and dark and cold. So you do feel compelled to find each other. And because these cities can be so expensive and fracturing, you have to really work to find your people and your community, which is so funny because I think me, like you, like so many other young creative people came to New York because I was like, this is where my people are going to be, you know? And even though it's so interesting because I don't even think I knew about like an Armenian community in in Maine where I grew up. It is the whitest state in the country. And yet I still felt that sense of isolation. So I think if I had pictured somewhere like 
LA or even the Valley, which I only knew about from like TV shows, I would have pictured, well, probably a place that's much whiter than it actually is and a place that was like cooler, you know, and, and not as sheltered, but you know, that's just the cultural imagination and also the right. <laughs> New York has on like all types of people, all types of yes. artists. Yes, completely, completely. And I think it's a lot easier to be in a city like, well, I won't say Chicago, but, but definitely New York. Like you are out of your apartment and you are completely in a community automatically. Like you're interacting, you know, and in LA, that's very much not the case because it's so geographically spread out. There's no real centers, you know? So that's another factor that I was able to see too. And yeah, definitely. So it's really cool. You're able to bring that sort of community aspect back to LA, especially around this time when you were having this artistic, political renaissance within yourself with the band, with Dum Dum Zine, and finding the LA Zine Fest. And it's just awesome you were involved in the first year of the Chicago Zine Fest and saw that inspiration and that generation and then got to experience it in LA as well. And you're still involved. You're doing LA Zine Fest again this year, right? We are. We are. I'm so um, I'm so glad they've never taken a year off because it's like the most wonderful time of the year. It's like Christmas. It's like Zine Christmas. Oh, Zine Christmas. What makes it like Zine Christmas is that feeling of community. Yeah, and just seeing everyone in the same place, and then also they make such a concerted effort to have a very large percentage of new tablers every year, so that everybody gets to have their their first experience vending zines which is like so important it's so encouraging I love that like in some ways as a sort of salty old school zinester I sometimes feel frustrated that zine fests seem more quote-unquote curated now and a little more I don't want to say exclusive because that's not the impetus, but that it's more almost professionalized and you have to think about like, how do I distinguish myself as a brand to get in? So that's like the negative side of it. But I think the positive side of it is that I see organizers really consciously making an effort to ensure new people are included, to ensure there's a more diverse representation of people making zines. And it's not just like the same people and their friends who heard about it first getting in. So I actually appreciate that, even if it means I don't get to like be a tabler at every zine fest, but you know, it's not my time necessarily. And you can still go and trade zines. It's not like can't go totally it's not like a museumified you know it's still you still get that feeling of like there's a there's an openness and an inclusivity that's that I love about zine fest yeah it's really nice so since we're talking about zines you're right now gearing up to make the sixth issue of Dum Dum Zine and you'd mentioned on the Dum Dum Zine podcast you started the first issue with $400 and your freelance money. You've done a Kickstarter campaign before. You're doing a Kickstarter campaign right now, which is a ton of work. But what about having like a print publication feels so important to keep alive right now? It is tactile. 
it's like the power of print, you know, it's tactile, it, it's organic, it's ephemeral, and it's permanent at the same time. It's this amazing entity that exists outside of our, like, wild, cultural, like, quick-paced, you know, um, it's just this concerted, curated effort to slow down and experience media in a discerned, slow way. Yeah, and that's just so different than scrolling Instagram culture and Twitter memes and things like that. Oh, totally. Totally. And it it is really important. And I think we were talking at the very beginning about inspiration and you're creating something someone could find years from now and be inspired by. Thank you. You're so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) um, Can you tell me a little bit, can you give us a little sneak preview of what you and the Dum Dum Zine editors are thinking about for issue number six? Oh, completely. You know, I'll, I'll proceed that by, by telling you how funny it's been talking about something that's going to be so printed and using the internet and fast media to talk about it. It's so funny because here we are like seeming like Luddites, you know, oh, we're bringing print back, you know, but you know, we're, we're using the internet and we're using this fast paced culture and we're using a lot of the tools to to garner support and community involvement and attention. Um, We're certainly doing it IRL too. We just had a big fest last week. But it's so interesting because, you know, you you make anything in 2019 and you have to talk about it on the internet. You know, you can't just flyer your way, you know, you can't just punk flyer your way through it. And it's been so funny, Eleanor, because we've always been an ad-free publication and we want to remain an ad-free publication as far as the print issues and the website is concerned. I don't know. We might work with some people for the, for our podcast. We'll see what happens. But it's been so funny because we're getting all these messages from these corporate folks asking about ad space. And it's hilarious because it's like, if we wanted to sell ad space, we wouldn't be creating something so hands-on and homegrown and DIY. Like if we wanted to sell ad space, our attention wouldn't be going toward a Kickstarter. So we've just been telling everyone like, yo, we don't offer ad space. Sorry, but here's our Kickstarter link. Like also like maybe come and join us and just spend time with us. But it's just so funny how you, you start to attract people who want to bank on the fact that what you're making is a real product and it's cool and you're not trying to pander. You know what I mean? You're not pandering for sponsorships. And it's just been fucking fascinating. And I just think it's the funniest thing. Sorry. I just really wanted to get that off my chest because I was talking to three people about this this morning. Like three people reached out to us this morning and I was like, Hey, like got some news for you. Like, That's really wild. And it's so interesting because I've heard from other people who make independent magazines that getting that ad space and that or selling ads and getting support is also challenging because there's so many ways to like buy ads now. But because we have this sort of nebulous idea of like creatives and influencers that brands are also like looking to align themselves with that quote unquote authenticity. I mean, just look at how many shitty posts there were yesterday was international women's rights day. And then I was like, Oh my God, like my online world is just full of all these brands trying to be like 
authentic about feminism and it's really transparent and like, I, it's, kind, know, it's kind of crushing it's, yeah totally yeah, crushing. yeah. so uh, good for you for staying punk staying independent and staying community minded about this and you know getting support from other artists and people who believe in print I think that's really important and you really live your life in a very DIY way I have to commend you what I want to tell people which maybe is not obvious when I say DIY I mean you are like identifying what you want what you want to make and you're making it it's not that you're totally doing it all yourself you record music in a studio you work with really talented collaborators so do it yourself is not do it alone like let's just remember that let's remember community but that you have that energy and drive behind what you do thank you fam thank you I feel that way about you too. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Well, here I am. Here I am in my in my office with my podcast mic. <laughs> um, yes. So I wanna talk, I wanna touch on something before we close. There's a few more things I wanted to talk about, but we haven't talked much about another side of your creative and just life practice, which is that in addition to being a badass musician and zine publisher and event organizer, you're also a healer. You're a yoga teacher and you run sound healing sessions. So how does this tie into your DIY approach to life, your punk influences and just who you are as an artist. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think there's more than one way to heal and only, I mean, we were talking about DIY and, and really we do that healing work ourselves. So there's tools, there's tools for healing. There's yoga classes we could take. There's prescriptions we could get on. There's, you know, like fitness regimens we can, we can try. And, and there's like, you know, people we can see who, who can help us with it. But at the end of the day, it's really the healing work is done ourselves, you know, within our own minds and bodies and spirits. And so any, any time I teach any kind of healing modality, whether that's like a one-on-one yoga class or, you know, when I make a zine about wellness or uh, I bring in some sound healing instruments to, to my music, I just keep in mind that we get to, and I, and I tell people, you know, we get to pick our own healing journey. Like we get to take the front and center of that healing journey. It doesn't like, it's not something that happens to us. You know, it's something that we create within ourselves and for ourselves because otherwise everything else is just a band-aid. Yeah, that's beautiful. How did you come to that philosophy or what compelled you to, start learning more about these healing practices? You know, I wasn't like, I feel like I was playing a lot of gigs back to back with my first band and I wasn't fully listening to what I needed, like on stage or, you know, like between my day job and the stage. And like, I didn't feel like I had full agency over where my energy was going. Like I was like leaking all over the place. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't really balanced. And and I got really interested in, in yoga and meditation and just started taking classes 
just to get my shit together. You know, I was in a lot of pain, you know, like I just wanted to just get my shit together and get some semblance of, of balance uh, to prevent burnout. And what ended up happening was the, the first studio I walked into had this amazing class called Yoga and Sound. And that's where I heard my first singing bowl. I heard my first gong, like used in a in a healing setting. And so I I started on this journey of becoming a yoga teacher and it's still something I do part time. It's still something I, you know, I still take on clients and stuff, but I don't offer like classes the way I used to. I used to offer like two classes a week because I started doing this as a way to heal myself. And once I dove into it, I realized that I was really in it for the sound. So it all like came mm. back to music for me. Um, so, you know, I still take clients and stuff, but um, really what I've started to do about a year and a half ago, I took my first sound practitioner training. And even this year, like I've only really offered one like sound healing event because I'm starting to incorporate sound more into performance settings because I feel like I'll be able to affect more people. And like a lot of these things are really like low ticket prices and a lot of these things are free. Like I'm playing one tomorrow. I know this isn't going to make it in time for the podcast, but it doesn't matter. Like I'm, I'm playing like an experimental sound set tomorrow and it's like for a festival here in LA and it's fucking free. And like, it feels really good to me to be able to offer something like that at a really accessible rate that anybody could walk into and get you know what I mean definitely and you might get a a different type of person someone who wouldn't necessarily say oh I'll go to a sound meditation workshop at a yoga studio or something like that but could be really impacted and affected by this so I think that's wonderful and very punk totally well yeah because the thing is like the person who's gonna go to that yoga studio to get the sound already knows about it you know what I mean they know about it they they can afford it this month or whatever you know what I mean but a, a lot of people don't have that that kind of access so it's like to be able to offer something on a large scale for like very little to no money like that feels really good for me (laughs) like you know because and the most beautiful thing about it is that when you're playing these bowls like a lot of people ask me at the end of these sessions like oh my god are you tired you must be so tired or like even when I'm playing on stage like are you tired and it's like no no I'm not I'm doing exactly what I was put here on this earth to do there's no fucking way I'm tired like are you fucking kidding me like I'm so I'm on cloud nine right now and like these instruments feed back to you they're like a feedback loop so when you're playing them they're like fucking healing you (laughs) they're so cool yeah I love it well I hope people will get a chance to join you for one of those sessions I've been in one of your sound healing workshops before and it's really transportative and I really love it so I love that um, word oh my goodness I've never heard that word before it is now I don't know transportative it might be made up gosh 
I'm here for it. It might be a made up word. But you know, I went to liberal arts college. I have my degree in making up words, basically. Totally, totally. Oh my God. I just, gosh, before we, before we stop, I just remember one of my favorite art school words I learned was materiality. Oh yeah. Can you even? Yeah. Can you even? (laughs) Um, Different than like, there's a sort of strain of Marxist that is materialist, but clearly I didn't pay attention quite enough in liberal arts college because I'm still struggling to remember what that is. I had my <laughs> I had my friend Lauren who's a sociologist on this podcast and she could set me straight on that. But so in closing, I'm just really curious from, you know, your days downloading punk covers from Napster to living in a punk loft in Bushwick to being inspired by Riot Girl and zines in Chicago to really building a creative life here in LA, there in LA that combines zines and sound and bands and many, many other projects. How do you feel that your relationship to punk has changed as you've grown as a person and as an artist? Oh, I love this question. You know, it's interesting because I was having this conversation with, at the Riot Girl hair salon that you recommended me to go to. <laughs> Where, um, which I just love uh, this. And you work yeah. with Sean Sopa, right? Yes. She was yes. the singer in this band and she was like one of three other girls in a band in Portland, Maine. This punk band called The Rhetorics and with my friend Neil who played guitar, I believe. But yes, yeah, I always love to recommend it. A Portland, Maine alum. There's very few of us that made it out. Uh, <laughs> so you were in the punk rock salon. Yeah, Se- yeah, we were at Seagull Salon. <laughs> yeah, I was at Seagull Salon, and Chance was was doing my hair, and we were talking about this too because you know we're not like you know 16 year old punk girls anymore, and but it's like completely like with us all the time and so you know we were talking about it and I feel like I don't know maybe my hair is like a deeper red now but it still feels like uh it still feels like this expression of resistance or it's just I I still feel angst and except except now I feel like I've built you know with community like I've built these outlets in, in order to funnel it in a in a way that can like help myself and then also help people. So it's like very directed angst instead of misdirected angst, if that makes any sense. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's one of the beautiful parts about growing up or just finding your community and finding your audience and knowing where you can have an impact and knowing and discovering your purpose. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And I appreciate you having me on. This is like a highlight of my week. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you, (laughs) Talene. You too. And I will let people know where to find you. Your Kickstarter runs until March 22nd. And so we'll be releasing the podcast before then. Mm -hmm. But I hope people will choose to support the sixth issue of Dum Dum Zine and support independent print and independent artists, feminists, folks who are really thinking about what it means to be artists during these very trying times when I think our survival depends on our community, really. Keep print alive. (laughs) 
<laughs> Eat print alive. DIY or die. <laughs> so good. Thanks again, Talene. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of Riot Woman and to Talene for joining me. Talene composed the theme music for the show, and you can find out more about her and support her work at talenekali.com. You can also follow her on Instagram at talenekali. That's T-A-L-E-E-N-K-A-L-I. Until March 22nd, 2019, you can support the Dum Dum Zine Kickstarter campaign by searching D-U-M D-U-M Zine on kickstarter.com. For show notes and more information on me and this podcast, you can visit eleanorcwhitney.com slash podcast. And hey, while you're there, I'd love it if you signed up for my mailing list. Finally, if you liked this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. It means a lot to me and helps others discover the podcast. Until next time.